good to see all of you. Um, happy Sabbath. And, um, yeah, glad that you could join us for our Saturday morning live stream. Um, I want to apologize in advance. Um, there are a handful of Bible texts that I wasn't able to get on the slides, and so I'm just going to be referring to them, and I'll read them to you. Uh, so at this time, I'm just going to invite you to um, grab your Bible if you have them, or if you have your phone and you've got your Bible on your phone. Um, I'll just be referring to a handful of Bible texts that uh, that didn't make it onto the slides. Um but yeah, so today we're going to be talking about uh, fasting. The sermon title is um, When Less is More, the Discipline of Fasting. And last week, Jinha finished up our series uh, of the Fruit of the Spirit on temperance, and she was going through a list of different tips as to how to cultivate temperance and self-control, and she touched on fasting. And as she was sharing about fasting, uh, I just felt really convicted. And um, yeah, over the week, I've just been kind of reading and thinking and praying about this idea of fasting. And so I thought I would share um, my learnings with you today. Um, so before I begin, I wanted to ask you, what are your general reactions to fasting? Like when you think of the word, what, what feelings uh, arise in your heart? My first reaction is, uh, no thanks. It's not really my cup of tea. Um, Jinha often tells me that nothing makes me smile more than a cookie or a donut. And, um, you know, the moment where I put my place, uh, the moment where I put myself in a place where, um, I'm not supposed to eat, then that happiness just tends to fade away. So uh, I don't know what feelings come to mind when you think about fasting, uh, but for me, I, I feel like I've become an unhappy monk. Now, despite my own personal feelings, I wanted to ask you, did you know that in every major religion, except for Sikhism, um, fasting is a significant part of that religion? And let me see if I can get this to work. Okay, yep. <laughs> I've got way too many keyboards and things in my head. No, it's all right. Oh, let's try it. Okay, so just wanted to explore fasting in, in uh, the different world religions. So in Islam, there's Ramadan. In Catholicism, there's Lent. Judaism, there's Yom Kippur. In Buddhism, there's Vesak. In Hinduism, there's uh, Navarat, uh, Navar, Navaratri. Excuse me if I've not done that feast name justice. So uh, fasting is a part of every major world religion. And fasting is also, um, historically fasting has been a part of Adventism as well. And so I want to share some uh, church history with you all in regards to Adventism and fasting. Now, Mary Margaret uh, Egmi wrote a paper, and she stated that between 1850 and the 1900s, there were 42 official seasons of fasting in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And what this means is that as a denomination, uh, letters were sent out, communication was sent out, and the whole church was encouraged to fast on 42 different occasions. Now, if you look at the timing uh, between 1850 and 1900s, um, the Civil War actually falls right into that timeline. And so there were different occasions where the Adventist church would corporately gather together and fast and pray that the world would come to an end, uh, that the war would come to an end, excuse me, not that the world would come to an end. 
There were also moments when the church would seek God's wisdom and provision in the direction of the church. And so members of the administration or the general conference would gather together for days at a time uh, for meetings and prayer and fasting would take place. And it was recorded by James White that many prayers were answered. Now, interestingly, if you look at that second stat from 1900 to 1977, the Adventist church only had nine corporate fasts. And so there's this dramatic decrease in the number of corporate fasting sessions that, uh, that, that, that took place in the church. And it's almost as if, um, the first generation of pioneers kind of passed away and they didn't really um, uh, maybe the next generation, they were, they were traumatized by all the fasting and decided, we're not going to do this as much, but this is just speculation. And the, this is Roy Kim speculation. So just take it with a grain of salt. Now, what I find the most interesting about fasting within Adventism is uh, Ellen White's uh, advice in this area of fasting. And the reason why is because she wrote quite extensively about fasting, and she gave lots of counsels to the church uh, during her lifetime about just different spiritual practices. Um, Fasting was one of them. Now, in 1863, the pioneers of Adventism were quite unhealthy. Um, Many of the founders of Adventism were overworked, uh, they dealt with anxiety, and they had poor diets. And so Ellen White, uh, she wrote these counsels to improve their health practices, and intermittent fasting was one of those counsels. And I'm just going to put up a summary of what she um, of what she stated in terms of uh, how to be healthy and how to practice fasting in a healthy way. So she said, eat two meals a day. And uh, Ellen White herself ate at 7 a.m. and then at 1 p.m. And then she would fast for 18 hours straight. She said, don't eat between meals. Eat a plant-based diet. Abstain from caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco. Only eat plain food and drink six to eight glasses of water each day. Now, keep in mind, uh, this is before germ theory. This is before diabetes and heart disease was really on the radar in the medical community. Um, but when the early Adventists practiced this simple diet and this um, intermittent fasting, uh, the the Lifestyle change had dramatic health results um, throughout the community. Uh, there was a decrease in indigestion and headaches. Um, it's interesting reading through uh, the early documents of the church. Um, dyspepsia, the word dyspepsia is uh, repeated many, many times, and that's just like an old word for indigestion. And that was kind of like a normal thing for uh, the people who lived uh, in the in the uh, mid-19th century, just because they would eat all the time and they would snack in between meals and their body never had a chance to kind of um, um, digest all of the food and rest from it. And so, yeah, just this simple act of intermittent fasting uh, had dramatic results. Um, the early pioneers experienced weight loss. Uh, Ellen White herself lost 25 pounds, which is roughly about 12 kilos uh, in the first eight months. And, um, yeah, just the overall health of the Adventist community increased. And I, I refer to this many times, but, um, not too long ago, the National Geographic published an article, uh, 
covering blue zones and the Seventh-day Adventists are kind of highlighted as a people who are uh, abnormally healthy and live to be uh, over 100 years old. And uh, anyway, the article highlights Adventist health and that's kind of it finds its roots and its foundation uh, in the councils of Ellen White. So when I started this sermon, I thought that Ellen White would be a promoter of abstaining from food for long periods of time. I thought she would be very pro, you know, fast for days on end uh, type of a person. But I was surprised to find um, quite the opposite. She took a very practical approach to fasting. One of the early pastors of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was a man by the name of Joseph Bates. And uh, Joseph Bates was a man of deep faith. Um, he's the type of person who would spend all of his money printing religious tracts. And when his wife would bring to his attention that they didn't have money for left over for food, he would then pray, God, please provide for us. And literally the same day, money would arrive in the mail. And uh, in the 1860s, mail took a long time to arrive. Like Western Union didn't exist. And so uh, before Joseph Bates was a minister, he was a sea captain. And for years, he observed the lifestyle of sa uh, sailors, and he decided he would not let alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine have a hold on his life. And he became this prominent figure in the temperance movement. Well, you get a feel for what Joseph Bates was like. He would eat one meal a day and then fast for two days straight. And he would do this regularly. And you can guess he started withering away and people were worried because he was an important leader in the church. So Ellen White wrote to Joseph Bates and she writes, I have been informed that you have taken but one meal a day for a period of time, but I know it to be wrong in your case. For I've been shown that you needed a nutritious diet and that you were in danger of being too abstemious. Your strength would not admit to your severe discipline. I think that you have erred in fasting two days. God did not require it of you. I beg of you to be cautious and eat freely, good, wholesome food twice a day. You will surely decrease in uh, yeah, you will surely decrease in strength and your mind become unbalanced unless you change your course of abstemious diet. Now, I want to spend some time talking about uh, Ellen White and her direct her her general counsels in regards to uh, fasting. And so here are three quotes where she talks about fasting in the context of uh, regular life. So here's the first quote. Now and onward to the close of time, the people of God should be more earnest, more wide awake, not trusting in their own wisdom, but in the wisdom of their leader. They should set aside days for fasting and prayer. Entire abstinence from food may not be required, but they should eat sparingly of the most simple food. The spirit of true fasting and prayer is the spirit which yields mind, heart, and will to God. Notice, she isn't so much focused on whether or not a person eats. She's focused on where's the, person heart, where's the person's heart uh, when it comes to their willingness to respond to the Spirit of God. And here's the final um, quote. All the fasting in the world will not take the place of simple trust in the Word of God. Ask, he says, and ye shall receive. You are not called upon to fast 40 days, the Lord bore that fast for you in the wilderness of temptation. 
there would be no virtue in such a fast, but there is virtue in the blood of Christ. So once again, uh, Ellen White isn't so much concerned about uh, abstinence from food. She's more concerned about making more space for the spirit uh, to occupy our minds rather than uh, gratifying the desires of the body. There are a couple of Adventist nutritionists that weigh in on the topic of fasting, and I, I feel like it, it helps gain perspective on the practice of uh, fasting from physical food. Alice Marsh says that fasting can be fatal to several groups of people. Uh, women, oops, <laughs> sorry. Uh, she says that fasting can be fatal to several groups of people. Women who are pregnant or lactating, people who are diabetic, hyperglycemic, or people who have hyperthyroid problems. She goes on to caution that when one fasts, they should never eliminate water. Uh, even juice, apparently, uh, juice fasts are not great for long periods of time because of the high sugar content. Thank you. So Alice Marsh actually gives some advice as to how to properly fast if somebody wants to add fasting into their life uh, as a regular practice. <laughs> She says, um, when fasting, uh, it's best to eat four servings of fruits and vegetables uh, during the day, uh, one green, yellow, one citrus, or tomato, uh, four servings of whole grain, bread, and cereal, two servings of milk, two servings of protein, two teaspoons of oil, uh, which amount to a total of 1,200 to 1,300 calories. Uh, Winston Craig, who is a professor of nutrition at Anders University, uh, points out that if one totally fasts for an, ex for an extended period of time, unhealthy biochemicals, uh, t uh, excuse me, unhealthy biochemical changes take place in the body. And as a result, a lack of nutrition can cause a breakdown in tissue. And uh, one of the muscles that break down um, is the heart. And so he highly discourages people from fasting multiple days at a time. He says, uh, I would not recommend a total fast even for one day. And he's more of a proponent of uh, intermittent fasting as well. So if you have interest in intermittent fasting, um, I want to recommend this article that was written by uh, DeWitt Williams. Uh, the article is called Two are better than three, and he gives a lot of practical advice around uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, the website is there, or you can just Google it. A fun fact is that uh, DeWitt Williams is an African-American who's in his 80s, and he went to Oakwood College with uh, Little Richard. And this is the time when Little Richard stepped away from rock and roll, and he chose to uh, respond to a call that God had placed on his heart, and he became a Seventh-day Adventist uh, minister and evangelist. And so anyway, DeWitt Williams was his contemporary, and he's uh, he's got some also really interesting articles on Adventist Review as well about his time with Little Richard. But highly recommend two are better than three. And so if you're interested, um, I recommend checking out the article there. Now I want to spend some time um, building a scriptural basis for fasting. Um, the theologian Angel Rodriguez says something quite uh, important about fasting. And he says, um, 
It's difficult to find one fundamental purpose for fasting present in all of its expressions. And so in light of the fact that it's hard to pinpoint one particular purpose for fasting, I'm just going to share a slide with a handful of Bible verses that talk about different instances when um, characters in the Bible fasted. And so here are a few of those. So fasting in scripture is closely related to uh, prayers of healing and deliverance, um, and you can see an example of that in Psalm thirty-five, thirteen. Uh, fasting is practiced in the context of a present or future calamity, uh, which is found in Esther chapter four. Uh, fasting is also practiced in mourning. Uh, it's practiced in the selection um, of church leaders. It's practiced as a sign of repentance. It's practiced as an expression of devotion to God. Also in the New Testament, well, I guess New Testament and Old Testament, um, Anna, who was a prophetess, uh, worshipped with fasting and prayer night and day as she waited for the uh, for, as she waited for the Messiah. Daniel fasted for wisdom uh, regarding prophecy that he did not understand. Uh, he also fasted and prayed for his people, um, and he asked God to have mercy uh, on his people who were backslidden. Um, and finally, in Matthew six, Jesus condemned ostentatious fasting um, as he discouraged um, his followers from practicing outward acts of holiness. Uh, he rather preferred that fasting was an internal, uh, personal decision. So I, I want to spend some time exploring the meaning found in fasting along with the spiritual benefits associated with fasting. And I think um, the the early church kind of highlighted this idea of appetite and fasting and associated it with the Garden of Eden. And um, you're familiar with the story. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, and God gives them all these uh, fruits and these trees to eat from, and uh, with the exception of one tree, uh, which is in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And so when God gives him, uh, gives Adam and Eve that um, that that rule, uh, it indicated a limitation to human freedom. And it was a way for Adam and Eve to recognize that they were dependent on God for life, that God is sovereign, that, um, yeah, that God is sovereign and that they would submit to his sovereignty. As the story continues, we read that the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and he asks them this question in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He says, he asks, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, it's interesting the way that the serpent uh, structures this sentence, because instead of a prohibition against one fruit, God's warning is presented as a prohibition against all fruit. And the temptation, it seems, uh, is to see a single boundary as so restrictive that it negates the good of all other freedoms. And you know the story. Adam and Eve take the bait. Metaphorically, they break the fasts. And not being able to deny that one limit required of them, life as they know it changes. So the result then is that fallen humanity now lives with the ability to set its own limits. Um, humanity has subjective limits as opposed to 
submitting to the objective limits that are uh, presented by God. So Adam and Eve find themselves, instead of finding life as gods, um, they experience a loss of life and experience mortality. And as the story continues, they witness the death, uh, the death of their uh, second son, and um, it's it's really a sad story. But when you look at how the world operates today, when you look at marketing at uh, marketing agencies and how they target consumers, the goal of human life then is similar to the very temptation that's given to Adam and Eve. And I'm making myself sound like a, you know, don't pay attention to any commercials or anything like that. Um, hear me out here. The goal of human life is presented as to acquire more, to experience more, to stimulate every sense to the capacity and beyond. Uh, humanity tries to live, lights, uh, live life with no limits, um, and it doesn't naturally surrender itself to anything or anyone. Uh, and of course, we have practical limits placed on us by rules and restrictions, and we are all very familiar with that, especially over the last six months. Um, but in general, in general, we try to live for ourselves. We live, we try to live the way we want, how we want, when we want. Now, the early church, when they looked at the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as they looked at the account of Jesus's life, they see a reversal of that story where Jesus gets baptized. He is recognized as the Son of God. And then he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that fast, he is tempted um, by the adversary. He's tempted by Lucifer, uh, who presents himself as an angel of light. And the very first temptation is, Jesus, turn those stones into bread. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the story, Jesus avoids the temptation by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what Jesus is communicating here is he's saying, Mankind is so dependent on food and so reliant on food, but I am reversing that by saying, God, I am prioritizing you first above my own needs, and it is by doing that that I find true life. And it is here that we kind of see this reversal of um, Jesus as a human being overcoming where Adam and Eve failed as, as humans. And so Jesus then kind of paves this way for humanity to then uh, once again experience life. But the different, there's a big difference between what happens in the Garden of Eden and in, uh, in, in the life of Christ, where Jesus is saying, it is through a life of denial that we find true life. There's this theme that kind of, uh, permeates scripture. And I want to look at a few ideas with you. Uh, the first idea is found in John chapter 12, verses 24. And in John chapter 12, verses 24, uh, it says, Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. There's another passage that talks about the similar idea of as we deny ourselves, uh, we find true life. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 uh, to 37 
Jesus says, Then he called to the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if for someone, uh, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There are a couple other practical examples in scripture. Uh, when you think about the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath is a day where we are reminded of our creator. We're reminded of God as savior, as king, as redeemer, as creator. Um, but there's one rule attached to the idea of the Sabbath, and that rule is to not work. That's a restriction. And for many of us, not being able to work or uh, not occupying our minds with um, secular things, that, that's a challenge. It feels like a restriction. And yet the idea is as we experience rest, as we step away from the burden of work, as we step away from the burden of trying to provide for ourselves and our family and our loved ones, uh, there's an idea that God then becomes a provider and we find uh, life in him. And so over and over and over throughout scripture, there's this repeated theme of as we learn to um, submit to those subjective restrictions or those objective restrictions, we experience a different quality of life. Now, I think there's this, it's easy as a Christian to take this concept of restriction and becoming uh, very ascetic, like to become very monk-like. And uh, the idea of self-denial and fasting can be elevated, and there's almost this um, pious uh, level of, uh, we, re- we reach a higher level of spirituality by, by uh, restricting ourselves more and more. And uh, I really like what Dallas Willard says, um, when he talks about this idea of balancing out fasting or the idea of fasting, he says, we dishonor God as much by fearing and avoiding pleasure as we do by dependence upon it or living for it. In other words, the purpose of abstinence is to learn rightly to enjoy God's gifts. Yes, we need disciplines of abstinence because we've come to relate to food, drink, sex, money, recognition, and many other things in life, not as lovely gifts to be enjoyed in moderation and gratitude, but as objects of consumption to fill emotional voids. Marjorie Thompson writes, uh, when what we consume is consuming us and what we possess is possessing us, the only way back to health and balance is to refrain from using those things that have control over us. Augustine once said that God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. There's something significant when God wants to give us something, and in order to actually receive that goodness, we need to make space for it. And I think that's where fasting makes sense. You know, we talked about how there's almost a danger to fasting from physical food. But there's so many other things that occupy our lives um, that we can fast from that promote health and wellness and clarity. Um, you know, I think of media, uh, especially over this time of of um, 
of, of social distancing, our family has been so dependent on media. And it's, you know, we get to the point where it's, we're just, we feel sad, nighttime comes, and it's just, it's so difficult to go to sleep and to get ready for the next day because it just kind of feels like there's this um, pointlessness to life. And so, yeah, I found myself watching more and more television and then it was, you know, we'd wake up in the morning and we'd feel groggy and it's like hard. And so like the boys are bored and they, you know, we run out of things to do. So we let them watch TV and it just, it it was like this cycle of just consuming media. And, you know, when, when I read through this content and as I was listening to Jin Ha preach, I kind of thought, yeah, like, what would it be like to try and fast from media just for one day to just, I wonder what hold it has on my life. And so this week, um, there were three days where I've tried to step away from media. And I'll tell you, it was so difficult the first day. I made it through the first day and the second day I found myself binge watching. And then I thought, okay, no, I, I actually, this, this occupies my mind more than I thought it does. And so for two days after that, I was like, I'm going to step away from it. And I just, I need to reset my mind and my body and just my scheduling just so that I can, uh, go be a responsible human being and, and, and be a benefit to my family and to my church and to my community. And, you know, in the midst of that fasting, I just, I found, like just a clarity of mind. I found, I found myself immediately feeling better. I found myself going to bed uh, and having a better sleep schedule. And, um, it, it, it didn't happen, happen in quick succession, but just it's, it's heading in the right direction. I think there are also different kinds of fasting. You can fast from judging. You can fast from overpacked schedules. Um, you know, I, on one hand, it's difficult because some of us are in industries, uh, some of you are in industries where uh, your managers place more work upon you. And it's it's hard to say no to those deadlines. And, and um, yeah, like I, I recognize that it's quite challenging. Um, but there are times when we can adjust our schedule. And a fast might entail fasting from having a busy schedule and seeing how that affects your life and actually resting and taking time to spend time with your uh, loved ones and uh, maybe your partner or just on your own. There are so many different ways of, of uh, practicing fasting and uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's from media, whether it's from work, whether it's from uh, practicing a negative character trait, I want to invite you to take some time um, you know, at the end of this sermon to just kind of in the quietness, uh, when uh, we'll have a time, a season of prayer in that quiet time of prayer, just to ask God, is there anything that's occupying too much of my life? Is there anything that you want from me? Um, and, and what steps should I take? You know, there, there are certain stories in scripture where fasting and the combination of fasting and prayer does incredible things. In Mark chapter 8, uh, excuse me, in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, there's a story of the disciples and they are presented with this uh, young man who is possessed and unwell and he throws himself into fires and into water and he is constantly a danger to himself. And his dad presents him to the disciples and asks the disciples, can you please heal my son? And they aren't able to do it. Well, Jesus comes to the disciples from uh, from a mountaintop. He's, he has spent the night in, in prayer, and he comes down, and 
he, uh, Jesus is presented with this possessed young man, and he heals the man. And the disciples kind of come to Jesus, they scratch their heads, and they say, why couldn't we heal this young man? Jesus had already given them the power to cast out demons and they had done it before, but they couldn't do it this time around. And Jesus looks at them and he says, this cannot happen without prayer and fasting. And and there's something about the combination of prayer and fasting that prayer cannot do on its own. And so um, I want to encourage you, for those of you who feel that sense of uh, wanting to go deeper with God, wanting to have um, just a different kind of a, a different kind of experience, a different kind of freedom, I encourage you to practice the combination of prayer and fasting consistently, uh, not just a one-off thing, uh, but having it be a normal part of your life. And once again, it doesn't have to be fasting from food, and I actually discourage you from fasting from food, but um, yeah, there just might be specific things in your life where you're saying, I, I want better control of this, to try it and see what happens. There's one final passage that I want to read with you. It's found in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 58, and I'm going to be reading verses 3 to 11 to you. And it's a quite lengthy uh, portion of scripture, but I just find this passage is so meaningful. And so for those of you who have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to invite you to read along with me. But Isaiah chapter 58, verses 3 to 11, here's what the text says. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So there's this conversation that's happening between God's people and God. And God's people are saying, hey, we're fasting and nothing is happening. Why not? And God basically responds by saying, on this day of fasting, rather than um, refraining from doing what you want, you continue to live wickedly. And so there's no point to the fast. Continues on. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? It is only for bowing one's head like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. 
in that whole description of what God is looking for in the fast, he actually never mentions the idea of abstaining from food once. You can read through the whole chapter and he's saying, there are specific things that I'm looking for in fasting. I want you to replace things that you would normally do for yourself and help those who are actually in need. Go help the homeless. Give food to the poor and the needy. Uh, actually, he says, share a meal with the food, uh, share a meal with the poor and the needy. Uh, I'm not sure how you're supposed to share a meal with somebody if you yourself are abstaining from food. And so it's almost as if um, the fasting that God is looking for is more just take time away from focusing on yourself and give to those around you. And as a result, you'll find a deeper sense of freedom, a deeper sense of peace, a deeper sense of God in your life. And so I hope that um, as you consider this, as we're still going through lockdown, as we're still going through um, hopefully the last bits of social uh, distancing, that as you try to recalibrate your life and, and, and go back into normal living, um, that this discipline, this practice would be a blessing to you. And uh, I look forward to hearing about um, what it's like for some of you. Uh, I'm going to be practicing it myself. And so, um, yeah, I um, look forward to having those chats with you. I'm going to invite you to join me for prayer. And um, at the end of my prayer, I'm just going to leave a moment of silence for you uh, to just pray with God, just between you and God. Uh, this isn't a social pressure type of a thing, but if there's something on your heart where you're saying, God, I, I do want to give you more of uh, my heart. I want to give you more space in my life in this particular area. Um, maybe the Spirit of God will, um, yeah, just speak to your heart. And so I'm going to invite you to join me for prayer. Father God, as we consider your word, as we consider this idea of combining fasting and prayer, as we consider giving you more space in our lives, um, Father, we are in, uh, we are in need of, um, understanding what it means to submit to your sovereignty. We are in need of you as God. We are in need of a deeper sense of life and a renewed life. And um, Father, I know for myself personally that uh, this has been something that has uh, been quite helpful, uh, at least initially. And I just want to pray for our church and for the those who are watching this and who are um, thinking of uh, including this as a part of their lives, uh, that you would reach down. And as the promise says in Isaiah 50, uh, 58, um, yeah, that you would guide us always, that you would satisfy our needs, that you would strengthen us. And so, Father, um, yeah, during this time of silent prayer, I just want to pray that you would speak to us now. Father, you've heard uh, the prayers of, uh, of your people. And, Father, as we seek for more, as we um, try to take on less, as we practice um, self-denial in certain areas, may we find that freedom um, that you've promised and may we find connection to you. Um, and, um, yeah, I pray that as a result, we would find uh, that deeper sense of life. I pray this in your name. Amen.